Jesus, we just love you and we want, we want to start this weekend off just acknowledging that we're here for you and that Holy Spirit. We, we say this all the time. This moment is silly and futile and, and stupid, really, if your presence isn't doing the real work. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask that we would be so aware of the power that you have living on the inside of us to point us to Jesus and what it looks like to live a life of Christ. And so we just right now, I want to thank you, God, for the freedom we have to worship. God, I, there are literally people all over the globe right now that are losing their life for your name. And we get the privilege to freely worship without fear, without hindrance. I pray that we would not take one moment of that for granted and that we would press in and we would listen with humility and that we would worship how, in how we listen to your word. We would listen, uh, worship how we sing to you in response to your word. We would worship as we come around the communion table with you. God, I just pray that the theme of this weekend, that is by the time we walk out of our respected campuses, you would have been honored and worshiped by your people. God, we consecrate this time to you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And everyone said at every campus, amen. amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. I never thought I would say this uh, because you have some of the most ADD pastors in all of America, but welcome to week seven of this series. Let's go. We have like four week muscle memory at our church. That's like as far as we can go before everyone's like, please talk about something different. And I'll be honest with you. When we created this series, we created it in three and a half minutes. Sometimes we spend hours and several meetings putting series together with creative elements. This one literally came together in a kid's room at the Littleton campus when Sean and I were talking for three and a half minutes and we went and told creative, we're going to be in Exodus for maybe a couple weeks. Let's call it Let's Go, right? And here we are seven weeks later. And the reason we're seven weeks into this is because we have got a unique amount of feedback from you guys at all of our campuses that just kept saying to us, man, God is speaking to me on such a profound level during this series that we said, hey, you know what? We're going to ride that wave until that wave is over. And there's, a, there's a, a, a number in the Bible, number seven, and it is the number that represents completion. This is week seven, and I can promise you this is the end of this series, all right? So I hope, I say this to our kids all the time, I say, kids, let's go out swinging. They know what that means. That means let's, let's finish better than we started, all right? And I believe in this weekend that we're going out swinging as we finish this final week of Let's Go. Now, in week four, uh, three weeks ago, I preached a message. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. And it was titled this. It was titled, Let's Go, dot, 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 slow. And I talked about this beautifully painful word or attribute of the spirit living in us called patience. And it is beautifully painful, right? It is one, it yields some of the most beautiful things in our life when we learn to be patient people, but it is a extremely difficult thing to embrace patience. We are people that love to move a hundred miles an hour. And I, I also said this, I, I talked about the art of waiting well, because you cannot be a disciple of Jesus, I believe you can be a convert of Jesus, but we weren't called to go into the, all the world and make converts of Jesus, right? We were called to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you do not understand the art of waiting well. And this is something that we, at least in our country, we do not do good with, right? 
And so for, uh, in week four, three weeks ago, I, I, I was supposed to have three points and I talk way too long. So it became a one point sermon. And I said, if we continue this series long enough and I come back up here, I will continue with point number two, because it is essential that we learn the art of waiting well, or the beautiful art of patience. And so I want to review if you missed that, because the first point that I gave a couple weeks ago was the single most fundamentally important thing about how to wait well in the kingdom of God. And it was this, I said this, if you're gonna wait well in the kingdom of God, you have to first understand this. God cares more about what you're becoming than what you're doing, right? I said it this way as well. I said, God cares more about your character than he does your quest. And the reason patience is so difficult for us, yet waiting well is so important for us, is because we are born into this world fundamentally opposed to waiting, Right, And we're born into this world and we're more concerned about where we're going than what we're becoming. The problem with that is God's way more concerned with what you're becoming than where you're going, right? We're way more concerned with our quest and our purpose in this lifetime than we are with the character that it takes to sustain that purpose in a godly way that's actually gonna cause you to enjoy that purpose and for that purpose not to destroy you. So I said, you gotta know that. God cares more about what you're becoming than what you're doing. The second, what I believe most fundamental aspect of learning the art of waiting well is this, and this is where we'll camp all weekend long, and it's simply this. If you are going to wait well, you're gonna have to do this. You're gonna have to watch what you worship while you wait. I'm gonna say that again. If you're going to embrace as a disciple of Christ the art of waiting well, you have to watch carefully what you worship while you wait. Notice I didn't say if or when you worship. It's not if or when you worship. It's who and what. Because you were fundamentally at the core created as a worshiper. If you're new to this whole thing, know that. It is, it is it's screamed to us all throughout scriptures. We were designed by our designer to bring glory to him. You are at your best when you are worshiping your creator in how you live your life, right? We get to offer our bodies as New Testament Christians, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Uh, Romans 12 says this is our what? Spiritual act of worship. We are worshipers. Every day, every breath you have, you are worshiping. So it's not if or when, it's what and who, right? And when we choose to worship anything other than God, the Bible has a term for this, and this is what we're going to confront this weekend. And on the surface, it's a tense term, and it's a difficult term, and it's a term you're going to hear, and you go, oh, he's going to be angry, Chad, this weekend, and pound the pulpit. None of that. I'm in an incredible mood this weekend. This is just one of those issues that we have to discuss, because if you don't know what to do with what we're going to talk about, you will get destroyed in different seasons of life. And the word we're going to use is this word idolatry. In Romans 1, they define idolatry, I think, the most simple and the best. It's this. It's simply when you choose to worship created things instead of the creator. How crazy is that? And yet, how common is that, right? For all of us, is to look at something God actually created and gave us to enjoy. And instead of just enjoying it and then worshiping God, we sometimes enjoy God and worship it. And that is a recipe for instead of spending like 11 to 14 in the de days in the desert, like maybe they should have, maybe a month, maybe two, depending on what God was up to, they spent 40 years in the desert because they didn't know how to wait well. So we're going to talk about idolatry. Idolatry is such a significant thing to your heart and my heart that the Apostle John says this in one of his last letters, 1 John 5, 21. Listen to this. He says, dear children, he loves the people he's writing to, and I love you guys. 
He's pleading with them. This is literally the last verse in his letter. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He doesn't end it with sincerely, grace and mercy be with you in the Lord Jesus Christ, John. He wants them to remember the last thing he said was, dear children, please keep yourselves from idols because he knew what we sometimes forget and what John Calvin once told us, the great theologian, the human heart is an idol-making factory, is it not? We were born into this world with such a proclivity towards worshiping things that God created instead of the creator himself. And so what we're gonna do to finish this series is we're gonna go to the most infamous moment in all of human history of what idolatry can look like in its fullest expression. And of course, it's in Exodus. It's that famous, whether you've been to church very long or not, you're probably somewhat familiar with it. It's that famous moment that we call the golden calf moment. Now, before we read in Exodus 24, I wanna give you a quick context. God had just given the children of Israel a gift. He had just spoken to them audibly. God rarely, if you read in the Old Testament, but especially in the wilderness, he next to never spoke audibly to the nation. He always spoke audibly to Moses personally. But God said, you know what? I'm gonna speak audibly to the whole nation. And so here's what he told them in his quick moment with them. He gave them what we now call the 10 Commandments. So imagine hearing an audible voice from God. Don't you think you could behave if you got an audible voice from God, right? Like that would hold you accountable, right? Well, the first thing out of God's mouth, which you think you would remember was this, there shall be no other gods before me. Imagine hearing him thunder that with a nation of 2 million people. First thing you need to know, he gave him 10 rules, but really if you can get the first one right, you don't even need to think about the other nine. Because if you go and you read the rest of the nine, you can do that on your own. You'll simply see that if I don't let idolatry grab a hold of my heart, those other nine things won't be an issue, right? He says, there shall have no other gods before me. And then he gives the rest. And then he says, good talk. And he says, hey, Moses, we got to keep talking. And this is where we pick up. Exodus 24, and I'm going to start in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Moses, come up to me on the mountain. And what's, what's the word? Wait the thing we love to screw up. He says, wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction, their benefit. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders right before he went up, he said, hey, wait for us until we return to you and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. They're now in charge because I'm gonna be up on the mountain with God for a little bit. And then if you skip down to verse 18, it says this. Moses was on the mountain getting God's law for their benefit to help guide them into the promised land, right? Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. A little less than six weeks and they couldn't wait. And I used to, and I've told you this this whole series, I used to read the book of Exodus with such self-righteousness because I have a 30,000 foot view. I'm thousands of years disconnected from the implications of what historically went on in the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but when I read how dumb and ignorant and um, arrogant and stiff-necked and how much they complained and how much they grumbled after God did miracle after miracle after miracle, I'm like, they couldn't even wait 40 days to get a law so that they could quickly get to the promised land. And then I start thinking about New Year's resolutions. And I go, oh yeah, it is tough. 40 days is a long time, right? (laughs) 
Like you can, be, you can be a dude that's like sedentary for 40 years in a row and then you have your big epiphany moment and you look at your gut and you're disgusted and so it's New Year's. You go to the gym for 21 straight days because that's about how long scientists say we have before we quit our resolutions. 21 days, man, you work out, you eat nothing but chicken and vegetables and drink like 2,000 ounces of water a day. And all of a sudden, three weeks into it, you go to the gym and you look around and no one's looking. You pull up your shirt. If you're a guy, if you're a girl, don't do that. But if you're a guy, you look and there's no abs. And you're actually mad. You're like, this is bull. I'm getting Cheetos. Forget this. I'm getting my blizzard again. <laughs> 21 straight days after 40 years of sedentary behavior. And you think you're entitled to abs, right? <laughs> this, is, this is, though, the plight of humanity, Red Rocks, is it not? This is the timetable we think is responsible and okay. This is how we work, and this is why so many people about three weeks into January feel like failures, and we have a big failure hangover, is because we are awful at waiting well. 40 days they couldn't even wait to get the final instructions so that they can aggressively walk into their purpose and their calling, the promised land. And they got tired of waiting, and here's where we pick up. We just read in chapter 24 what was happening on the mountain. This is what's happening down the mountain. Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses, here's another word, delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together, Aaron, because he's in charge now, right? The great high priest Aaron. They said this, up, I love that, <laughs> up, make us gods who shall, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Humans, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, say it again, write it down. Humans are notoriously awful at dealing with delays. And here's the problem with that. Every delay in life you will ever experience is divine. Even ones that are self-inflicted because of your bad choices. Like God isn't taking a time out from you because you're in a season of discipline if you've made some really bad choices. Men and women at God Behind Bars, please listen to this. Every delay, even the ones that are self-inflicted because of bad choices are divine from God. And here's why. The Bible says every day has been ordained for you and written down in God's book before one of them came to be. God is not shocked by any wilderness experience that you and I are going to walk through. God loves delays. We hate them. You will never be the disciple that Jesus has called you to be until you understand that delays are divine, even ones that you weren't planning on, even the ones that you sovereignly don't know what happened. Some of you aren't delayed because of bad decisions. Some of you are delayed right now because of other people's bad decisions that affected you so deeply. But listen to me, God is divinely always up to something during delays, but here's the problem with that. You know who loves delays almost as much as God? The devil. Because two things can happen during seasons of delay. One, it can deepen you, or two, it can destroy you. And God's plan in every delay that you would consider in your life a delay, God is trying to bring a depth of character and maturity of you to prepare you to continue to move forward. But you know what the enemy does? Because he knows we're so bad at the art of waiting. The enemy loves to do this. He, he, he waits for seasons of delay, whether self-inflicted, or outsourced, and then he loves to come in and do some of his most aggressive work. And what he loves to do when things are being delayed is to get us to start getting interested in things that can distract us instead of deliver us. 
He loves to get us interested in worshiping things instead of the one that can actually do something about our delay and is doing something about our delay. Every delay is divine, and until you see that, you will not wait well, and some of our worst decisions come as soon as impatience has the best of us, right? Goes on to say this. So Aaron, the great high priest, they just told Aaron, we just read it a minute ago, what'd they say to Aaron? Hey, fashion for us something tangible that we can worship because we don't know where Moses went and we don't know what God's up to. Give us something to worship. And here's where Aaron should have been like, I will not do that, Israel. I am the great high priest. You audibly heard the Lord say, we shall make no other gods before him. So here's what we will do, Israel, in the name of our God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will take the last order and directive God gave us. And until he gives us another one from Moses on the mountain, we will just obey and worship. Here's what he really did. He's like, oh, all right. He, he goes, and, I, and I'm not being self-righteous because I sometimes relate more with Aaron as a pastor than Moses. I sometimes feel more like just telling you everything you want to hear all the time than what you need to hear. So I, I get this, but he goes, all right, yeah, I, I feel it too. Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the rings of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off all the rings. Keep in mind, that's a lot of bling. That's a lot of gold. That's two some million people. They took off all the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And I have to take another quick time out again real quick because there's just too much irony here. And we're about to get a classic definition in case you're wondering still what, what idolatry really is. It's this right here, and here's what I mean. Let's talk for just real quick what it would have taken for them to have those earrings in the first place. First of all, the prince of Egypt, Moses, when he was 40, had to leave the pleasures of the palace, <clears throat> and for 40 years, in order for Israel to ever be delivered where they would eventually get earrings on the way out, he had to go to the desert and learn how to lead in the desert sheep so that he could lead stubborn people for 40 years. So for 40 years, God was training him and teaching him in the desert. That's what had to happen first for them to ever have any earrings. Then when God instilled enough courage and character in him, Moses went and although he was scared, he said, in the name of God, let my people go. Then you know what God had to do? Because Pharaoh said, absolutely not. God had to supernaturally and sovereignly perform what I call backwards miracles, aka plagues, God had to perform 10 plagues on Israel, supernatural, to finally wake Pharaoh up and go, oh, I should probably let those people go. Then when they were leaving, God told Moses to tell the Israelites, hey, on your way out, I'm going to give you favor. Give. Keyword give. It's a gift. I'm at favor is always a gift from God. I'm going to give you favor, and I want you to go to the people that used to abuse you and own you, and I want you to ask for their bling. And they're actually going to say yes, because I'm going to compel their hearts to do that. Why? God's favor, God's gift, his undeserved favor, right, is the other reason. Then they leave Egypt, okay, and then Pharaoh decides, oh, that was a bad idea, go get them, and they're stuck at the Red Sea. Now, they were going to go get their earrings back, right, Pharaoh was, but then God does what? Supernaturally parts the sea for them to walk through. Do you see how much sovereign stuff for years before they ever had those earrings that they're about to worship? Do you see how much sovereign stuff God went through to give them those gifts and that plunder on the way out? How foolish of us to take something we've done nothing to deserve or earn and actually worship it over our God. 
Like not one dime you've ever made in your life. I don't care how dynamic you are, how charismatic, how brilliant, how gifted, how hard, if, if your main hashtags every week are hustle and grind, I don't care. <laughs> you don't earn a dime without breath. Can we agree with that? Can we start basic? Who is the author of breath? Not you. Not you. Every breath, that's why David said, with every breath we praise God. Why? Every breath is a sovereign, not only gift from God, but it's a message from God going, I still got a purpose for you. How dare us worship things that we could on our best, most dynamic, impressive day ever get on our own. Even the gifts that set you up to be in good spots are gifts. That thing you can do, whatever God gave you to do, that you just do naturally and you just do it better than other people. And people wonder why you're so good at it. And you're like, it just, it's easy for me. Where do you think that came from? That was God giving you your gift to contribute to his glory and for his glory. Why would we ever worship the things that he simply gave to us as a gift? And that's exactly what they're doing there. And, and I don't have time, but if you go read the full story, God is not thrilled with it. And I'm putting it lightly. Like there's one, God's like, hey, here's one of my attributes that is gonna confuse you a bit theologically, but it is true. I am jealous for your affection. And I am not, as a holy God, gonna share your human affection with things that I spoke into existence. And this is precisely what idolatry is. It's, it's going, well, we don't know what God's up to, but he gave us some cool earrings, so we'll worship those. Let's melt them and make a calf. And we don't make golden calves anymore, but man, there's so many different things that God has given us to enjoy as gifts. And instead of just enjoying them in their proper place, we completely misuse them in hopes that they'll give us what we want while we're waiting on God. Because God's timetable, as I said several weeks ago, is not our timetable. And his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so they went on to say this. They said, these are, our, these are your gods, O Israel. No, they're not. I don't have time. Go read the story. God tells Moses when he's watching this happen. Do you know what they just said? God repeats that line right there to Moses. He goes, they think those gods are the gods of Israel, like the calf. No, they're not. Who brought you up out of the land? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, capital L. Aaron's actually back on the right track again. We're going to actually have a feast to the one true God. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings. Again, they're on the right track. God had asked them to sacrifice some cattle as burnt offerings to him. And they brought peace offerings. That was another cattle sacrifice that God had asked them to do. So, so far, they're doing good. They're three for three. We're gonna have a meal to the Lord and we're gonna do two sacrifice offerings, right? But then it says this, then the people sat down to eat and drink and then it says, and I, I'm reading from the English standard version and it doesn't do it just as it says they rose up to play. That sounds like, hey, Bill, get the bags out. Kids, go play Duck, Duck, Goose. Isn't God awesome after church on Sunday? No, no, no. It's drunken revelry if you do the quick study. Other translations call it drunken revelry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament gives us the cliff notes of this moment, and Paul calls it drunken revelry. There were Numbers 25 explicitly tells us what was happening when they rose up to play. It was not good, and I wrote in my notes here, we live in like a fat Tuesday, Ash, Wednesday culture, do we not? Let's go crazy on Tuesday, and then we'll make up for it on Wednesday with God. Let's, I'll go to church on Saturday or Sunday and get me some Jesus, but I'm also gonna try some other gods because Jesus takes a whole lot of time. 
I, I, I'm going to keep praying to God to help me in this situation on Sunday, especially, and I'm going to worship good Saturday or Sunday. But Wednesday, if I'm not feeling all the fills I felt on Sunday, I might try some of my old Egypt behavior. And I'm just going to kind of mix the gods. And I don't think we're just, we're, we're in the American church, this, this group of people that just flat out as idolaters. I think we've been taught too well for that. I think we're too smart for that. But what I do think is an issue that we have to be very aware of and we have to approach this soberly is I think we're having, we have a church culture in myself. I'm bringing myself in this that we, we, we so struggle with God's timetable that it's like, yeah, I'm gonna keep trying stuff on Sunday. We're gonna do some peace offerings. We're gonna take communion. But then if, if, I, if I don't still have the fills on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, then I'm gonna go about some other things, some other forms of worship. And we end up falling into idolatry. We end up giving credence and energy and resource and sweat equity into things that God created. And it never goes well for us. I wrote in my notes, when you're in a season of waiting or delay, your biggest temptation will be this, to cope. And coping and any type of coping mechanism we'll talk about in a minute, coping is the gateway drug to idolatry. I worked hard on that, thank you. <laughs> coping is the gateway to idolatry. And here's where I have a lot of compassion for Israel. I get it. I feel the same way when God's timetable isn't jiving with, with my hopes and dreams and aspirations. I feel the exact same way. You know what I want to do when I'm in a discomfortable, uncomfortable? <laughs> I'm a treat. How did I get this job? Thank you. I'm grateful, though. I'm very grateful. I, knew, I know I don't deserve it, so thank you. When you're in an uncomfortable season, the temptation isn't to be delivered from it, it's to be distracted from it. Because God's the only one that can deliver you from difficult delays and seasons. So, so you know what we usually do? We sell out on the, the sometimes arduous process of deliverance of our situation. And, and we say, I'll just take distraction instead. I, I, I don't want God to do what he's doing. I, I would just rather be numb, right? And, and that's what we do. And I said in my notes here, when you're waiting for God to deliver you, and I wrote just a couple examples, and this is a, this is a huge one that I've seen over the years. When, you, when you're in some pain in life, when you're in a season of pain, that always feels like a wilderness, does it not? Like physical pain, that's horrible to walk through physical pain when, 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 when that's you. When you're in a season of emotional pain, psychological pain, difficulty, whether it was pain you brought on yourself or outsourced pain that was brought to you. Man, we make some of our worst decisions when we're crying out to God to deliver us from this pain and he's not doing it as fast as we need him to. And, and if that's you, I have so much compassion for you, but I just want to lovingly tell you, your temptation is going to want to be to cope and to numb in that pain. And, and, and the problem is what's so deceptive about it is it's going to feel good really quick, way quicker than waiting on God. Let's talk honest. Numbing, numbing happens immediately, right? Coping happens immediately, but we are not called to cope. We're called to hope through problems. We're not called to cope through problems. We're called to hope through problems. We're not called to distract through difficult situations. We're called to be delivered through difficult situations, but deliverance takes longer than distractions. Here's another one. If you're waiting on God to deliver you from a frustrating season of what seems like insignificance, some of you right now, you're, you're sick and tired of watching other people's dreams come to fruition in front of you, and you're starting to just be like, oh, forget it. 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to start knocking people off the ladder if I have to. No more of this character thing. No more of this integrity thing. No more of trusting God to be my promoter anymore, right? I'm going for it myself. Whatever I got to do, I'm going to get it done and I'm going to do it. Some of the worst decisions are made when you're in a season that you're frustrated because things aren't panning out the way you thought they would and life feels insignificant. Keep hoping. Don't start coping. Don't start giving worship to things that aren't going to get you out of that season. Uh, here's another one. You're waiting for God to deliver you from a mess that your bad decisions created and, and, and caused. Please hope through that. Men and women that got behind bars, again, listen to me. You're behind those bars because of some bad decisions. And it is so easy to give up hope and go, well, I'm here there's nothing I can do about it. This is my sentence. And it's so easy to cast off restraint. And it's so easy to just try and find something to numb your situation. And I am telling you boldly, you can hope through that prison sentence. You can have faith that God is actually up to something in that prison sentence, that he's put you there behind those bars to prepare you for something that when you get out of those bars, he's going to do incredible things through your story. You're actually going to help some people from falling into the same mistakes you made because of what you learned because you decided to hope instead of just numb and cope. That's for all of us, but I speak specifically to you guys because I love you guys. God has a plan for you guys. A lot of us say this, and if you're saying this, this, this message this weekend is for you. We say, until God fixes this thing, or until God fixes me, my problems, my sins, my struggles, my pain, then give me something I can distract myself with. Our job is to hope, not cope. And let me say this about hope. We sometimes hear hope, and we, we associate it with emotions, right? Please don't make that mistake. Hope is not an emotion, Hope is a state of the heart that has been cultivated by faithful action. Hope is not something that is arbitrary, that simply comes and goes with what's happening in your life right now. No, you'll have all kinds of feelings that come and go with circumstances. Those are emotions. Hope is not an emotion. Hope is a state of the heart of someone who is intensely believing that God has a plan no matter what you're walking through. That's what hope is. Hope is something that takes self-control. We, we love the word hope, it's, it's nice, it makes you feel good, but, but we don't like the word self-control, but you cannot walk in hope if you're not a person of self-discipline and self-control. Because do you know when you need the word of God most? Do you know when you need to, here we go, do you know when you need to swipe left most the word of God and you wanna swipe left most on your phone to distract and numb you from reality? I thought that was great, forget it. <laughs> Lakewood loved it, Evergreen loved it. You know what I'm saying though? Like, like if you've ever needed to swipe left more in the word of God, it's when you're gonna feel the least like doing it because you're tired of waiting or you're sick of the season. But do you know what stirs up hope? The word of God, Romans, I believe 10, 17 says, the word of God, faith comes from the word, the hearing of the word, right? It, it, that's, that's what we do. If you wanna walk in hope during difficult seasons so that you don't mess things up by idolatry, man, you, you need self-control more than ever. Here's the problem though, put this up on the screen. Here's the difference, here's why coping versus hoping is so tempting. Let's start here. Coping yields immediate results. Hoping rarely yields any immediate results, if ever. 1-0, coping. Coping distracts from reality, what's hoping do? 
it forces you and asks you to confront reality head on. Which is easier, being distracted or confronting? Being distracted, right? But here's the problem. Coping in the end destroys you long term. Hoping in the end, although it costs you on the front end, it yields incredible long-term results. Let's talk about it in financial terms. Coping is play now. Remember what they did after they made the golden calf? They rose up to what? Play. Coping is play now, pay later. And hoping is pay now, play later. That's not my word. I, I said it a couple weeks ago. Romans chapter five says what? We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. And here it is, character eventually gives you what you want, hope, what you were designed for, hope. And you know what it goes on to say? Hope does not put you to shame. Hope, most of your Bibles will say, does not disappoint. You know what disappoints you every time in the end? Idol worship, every time. But man, it feels so good on the front end because it numbs you. It gives you something to fixate on and distract yourself from realities of life. Some of you, it's what? We, we know. I had a long list and I, I'm not gonna list them all out. We, we, you know what you're most inclined to go to to distract or to numb yourself, to cope during difficult seasons of life. Some of you, it's, it's the bottle. Some of you, it's pain pills. Some of us, it's gluttony. That doesn't get talked about enough in church. That's real. You know how I know? Because I struggle with it. And I'm not even kidding right now. It is amazing. And here's part of the reason you get a free pass in the church. It is amazing the inappropriate relationship so many of us Americans have with food, myself included. That we, you know how we're supposed to cast all our cares on him? You know what my first inclination is? I'm casting that baby on Dairy Queen every time. Why? I'm getting that sugar high and it sure feels good for a little bit, right? But in the end, it doesn't yield what I want. Quite the opposite. My, my natural inclination when I'm anxious isn't to go to God. Some of you, it's like, give me the glass of wine and, and, and three glasses later, you're like, I think I feel better now. Yeah, you're a functional alcoholic. And pretty soon it's not functional anymore and it's not cute anymore. It's not a craft beer hobby anymore, gentlemen. It's a, I don't know what to do with this season of life and I don't like how I feel right now and I wanna breathe. But the problem is, is if you cope instead of hope long enough, eventually that thing goes from, from, from something to distract you to something that has a stronghold on you. And God's loving us enough to go, you can't let those things do that to you. I have something better, but you gotta pay now so you can play later. You might suffer a little bit to not have that thing in your life. You might have to suffer a little bit, but guess what? It's gonna give you a persevering spirit, and you know what that does? It creates character, and you know what character always creates? Hope, and hope will not disappoint. So that's the question, and band, you guys at all campuses can come on up. Pay now, play later, through hope that you with action and intentionality and self-discipline continually cultivate. And, and I know it's so counterintuitive when you're in a difficult season, but you're the, if, if it's you, you need it most right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you to rise up and say, I am going to hope again. Some of you came here on the brink of some really bad decisions. Some of you came here and God brought you here to save you from what you were thinking about doing this next week because you're so sick of waiting or you're so sick of the delay. Or you're so convinced that God 
doesn't have that purpose we've been talking about this whole series. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. You're, you're convinced that doesn't apply to you. And God brought you here to say, no, you rise up and you keep fighting until I come down the mountain with your next to do, do what I told you to do last and stick to that and pray for that. If you have to fast for that, read the word of God for that. It's your sword, go to battle with it. But don't give in and just say, I'm just gonna numb and I'm just gonna give all my affections to something that God created because it just doesn't work in the end. And God has something so much better for you so much better for you. One of my favorite things about communion, and at all campuses, you guys can go ahead and grab that. One of my favorite things about communion, for all of the dimensions that that come with why we take communion, the Apostle Paul told us one of the most important reasons we take communion and how to do it appropriately is this. He says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. He says, because anybody that eats of the bread of the Lord or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. We don't want to do that. And he goes on to say this. This sounds like Old Testament stuff. He says, this is why many of you have come under judgment. And some of you are weak and some of you have even fallen asleep. That's, that's language I don't like to hear. I'm like, it wasn't that Old Testament, God? Like, no, 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 we're taking communion, like, right? And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You can't do this game where it's like, like Jesus on Sunday, communion on Sunday or Saturday, and then coping skills again, coping mechanisms on Thursday. Like, no, examine yourself before you drink this holy thing. That's, that's, that's why these, this little piece of bread and this little, this, this little bit of, of juice is here. There's nothing magical about it. The reason we we put these in front of us is to go, oh, he paid the highest price to save me. I better think about how I'm living. He paid the highest price to forgive me as a gift. I want to, in return, worship him with my life. So are there areas of my life that I'm worshiping everything but him? And if so, the beauty of communion is in its grace, it brings the heart back to the sobering realization, man, it's time to hope again instead of cope. So for every one of you at every one of our campuses, and you say, that's my story right now, man. I walked in here and I'm just, man, I'm numbing a bunch of stuff right now because I'm overwhelmed. Can I just tell you, you serve a God that spent 33 and a half years down here to understand your plight. We do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize or empathize with us because he has been tested, tried, and tempted in every way you and I were, every way the children of Israel were, yet was without sin so that when he shed that blood we're about to celebrate, he could bring us back into sonship and daughtership, not just image bearers. Everyone on earth is an image bearer, but until you're born again, you're not a son or a daughter, right? But once you're a son or a daughter, you get to approach him boldly with confidence to receive mercy in your time of need. You don't have to qualify if you're a son and a daughter. That's what we drink to. That's what we celebrate. But we got to examine ourselves before we do that. And so I'm asking you as we, we do this, just answer one question to yourself. What's the biggest either idol or potential idol that I am continually prone and drawn to so that I can cope versus hope? What's competing most in my affections and relationship with Jesus right now? Listen, God already knows the answer to that for you. You're not answering that to do a service to him. You're answering that so that you can actually 
plead for the grace. Come boldly during this time of worship and communion. You get to come boldly to him and say, God, would you help me? I want to be a hoper. But it just feels so easy to cope and I'm, get, I'm spiraling. God, would you help me? Or maybe that, that, that coping stuff has turned into addiction. God, would you deliver me? We serve a deliverer, Red Rocks Church. Call out to him. Cry out to him. That's what this bo- broken body and blood does for us. So let's take the, the piece of bread and this is awkward for me because I don't even know that I can get this open. What are these things? People in heaven are like, that's what it's come to? Okay. All right. We love them. But, but this, isn't, this isn't magical. This is simply you going, oh, this helps me be reminded that his body was broken so that my life didn't have to remain broken any broken area of life. His body was fully beat so that you could be saved and healed. He said, his words, not ours, not mine. I wouldn't be so bold if, if, if it was my words. This thing right here is him going, you've got to remember that I took 40 lashes minus one so bad my friends couldn't recognize me. I had a crown of thorns dug into my head. I was spit on, I was mocked, I was made fun of by people whose spit I created, I took from them. And still, my, some of my last words were forgive them. They don't know what they do. And I love them. I love them. You understand that? The only reason God did this is love. He loves you right now. And he wants to help you. And this is, this is permission to cry out, to take every broken spot in your life and say, God, give me hope again. Let's eat. It says in the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he was with his disciples in the upper room. And he said, guys, this wine, it kind of looks like blood, right? I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but this is what he was getting at. Looks like, and so we're going to use wine as often as you drink it. You can do as little as you want. You can do as often as you want, but, but do it a lot. You can do it at home. You can do it in your car. You can do it when you have friends over, your life group. You can take communion as often as you want. You can take it every morning. You could go to bed taking it every night. As often as you drink this, here's the point. That blood represents that you get to come to me boldly. And I paid and I procured that for you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to earn it. If you have been born again, you are a son and you are a daughter. You get to boldly ask me for things that you know on your best day you don't deserve. And it is the Father's honor to help you and to serve you and to heal you and to meet you where you're at. Let's drink to that. God, I thank you for your word. I love it. I love your word, God. It has revolutionized my life. And I thank you for it. And I thank you for what it's doing at all of our campuses right now. God, as we begin to worship you with song, I pray that you would be just so blessed with what's coming out of our mouths because of what's in our hearts, our love for you. I pray that you would fill that in these next few minutes. At all of our campuses, Red Rocks Church, let's worship.